I don't know if you I don't know if you noticed, but one of our worship songs that we sung today begins with the theme music of Jurassic Park. <laughs> Did anybody else catch that? I thought that was pretty cool. I'm sure my four-year-old loved that. Jurassic Park, those are his favorite movies, actually. He doesn't call them Jurassic Park. He calls them dinosaurs eating humans. <laughs> Speaking of dinosaurs, Charles Spurgeon once said, I was looking for a segue there. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon once said, uh, the gospel speaks tenderly to the ungodly, but the gospel speaks sternly to ungodliness. The gospel speaks tenderly to the ungodly. In other words, if you are one of the ungodly, you are not a believer, you are not a Christian, the gospel speaks tenderly. The gospel says that Jesus has come and He has lived and suffered and died in the place of a sinner like you so that you could be reconciled to God. And then the plea of the gospel is to come to Jesus and to surrender to Him and to turn from sin and, and put your faith and your trust in Jesus and the promise of the gospel is that if you do, to those who are ungodly, if you do, He will save you from your sin. So that is the gospel speaking tenderly to the ungodly. But on the other hand, the gospel speaks sternly to ungodliness. For those who are among the godly, for those who are Christians, for those who are believers, who continue to persist in sin, who continue to live ungodly lives and who don't address ungodliness in their own lives, then the gospel speaks sternly to them. It says, how could you? How could you live this way? How could you go on living this way? Habitually, not addressing this behavior that needs to be changed, that you know does not please God, that you know grieves the God who died for you. That is a stern word that the Gospel brings to ungodliness. And we might refer to that as the call of the Gospel or the demand of the Gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came and he lived and he suffered and he died and he rose again in the place of wretched sinners like you and me. And he did that so that sinners like you and me could be forgiven, could be washed, could be sanctified, could be justified. That is the good news of the gospel. And so we're called not to live holy lives so that God will save you. That's not the motivation for godliness for the Christian. 
It's not live a holy life so that God will save you. It is God has saved you. So live holy lives. Live in a way that pleases Him and honors Him. Not to get something from Him, but because you have received everything already from Him. And so the Christian life is motivated. Holiness is motivated. Godly behavior is motivated, get this, by gratitude. By gratitude. Our good behavior is not an or else behavior. It's a because God has already loved us, already saved us. And so to go on living in ungodliness is terrible. Because this is true for you, Christian. These verses that we're reading this month together, 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is true for you, Christian. So how could you not live a life that pleases God? Or verse 2 of the song we sang this morning, His forever. Jesus, friend of sinners, a crown of thorns you wore for me. Bruised for my transgressions, pierced for my iniquities. The wrath of God that I deserved was poured out on the capital I, innocent. He took my place, my soul to save. Now I am His forever. That is true for you, Christian. Live like it's true. In other words, and this will be Paul's point today, live according to who you are. Know who you are and what you have been saved from and live accordingly. The Corinthians were not behaving well. These first six chapters is just Paul addressing their bad behavior. He's called them out on their division, their pride, their arrogance. He's called them out on the sexual immorality that was among them in chapter 5 and how they were inadequately responding to it. And now in here in chapter 6, we find out that they were suing one another. They were actually filing lawsuits. They were taking one another to court within the church to, to make a buck. And so Paul calls them out. Again, and he calls them out and reminds them that they are not living in accordance with the gospel. They're not living a life that is worthy of the gospel. They're not living in accordance with who they are as Christians who have been washed, sanctified, and justified by God. So as we move forward and look at 
these first verses in chapter 6, remember what we're about to do. We are going to sit under the preaching of God's holy word. The Holy Spirit is about to unsheathe his sword. And when the Holy Spirit does this, we should not be surprised if our souls are cut deeply. Hebrews says this is what the Word of God does, and it's what the Holy Spirit does with His Word. And when God's Word is preached and the Holy Spirit comes, we might be cut deeply and have our sin exposed as the Corinthians had their sin exposed and have the light of the gospel shined in to bring shame and then to bring comfort. So before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word. As we listen to this sermon, we ask that you would illuminate our minds and ignite our hearts. We need your help to understand your word and we need your help to put that understanding into action. So please come, fill us with your Holy Spirit and reveal your word and your will to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you are using one of our church Bibles, which you are no longer free to take with you if you don't own a Bible, because if you look, they are no longer junky. They are nice. Take a peek. We have arrived as a church. We have real pew Bibles now. Seriously, don't take them. <laughs> If you need a Bible, we've got, some, we've got some other ones that we can give you. Let us know. So we've got a new page. You will find today's text on page 897. Please take care of these Bibles too. If you see your kids writing in them or writing on them, um, it's just even worse now. In chapter 5, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, which... If you were here, if you, if you weren't, that's okay. We studied chapter 5 last week, and there Paul addressed a, a problem in Corinth. They had a shocking response to shocking behavior within their church. And now in chapter 6, Paul does the same thing. He addresses more shocking responses to more shocking behavior. So, I've decided to preach through this text in two parts. So first, we'll look at verses 1 through 6, where Paul identifies a problem and offers a solution. In verses 1 through 6, he identifies a problem and offers a solution. And then second, we'll look at verses 7 through 11, where Paul reveals a deeper problem and then suggests a gospel alternative. So let's begin with the problem and a solution in verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, 
Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So this was another problem in the church. Apparently, and this will become more clear as we read on, members of the church in Corinth had, how does Paul put it, grievances against one another, and they were going down to the civil courthouse to resolve them. So they were actually suing one another. They were lawyering up, dragging one another into court. They were filing lawsuits against one another. Deacon Bob helped me build this fence, and I gave him a hundred bucks. And last week in the windstorm, the fence blew down. So I'm suing Deacon Bob for $100. Or Miss Stewart brought her famous casserole to the potluck last week. And I didn't leave the bathroom for two days, so I am suing Miss Stewart for pain and suffering. Or the pastor's kids hit my car with a football in the parking lot. And I filed a claim with my insurance company, and you better pay up, or you can speak to my lawyers. So Corinth already, Corinth was already, we know this historically, was a litigious society. So like California, they were unreasonably prone to go to court. But the same behavior in the church was shocking to Paul, which is why he uses this phrase in verse 1, does he dare. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? In other words, he's saying, how dare you? How dare you take a fellow member of your church to court? David Strain, he describes the problem this way, and he he puts this in contrast with the behavior talked about in chapter 5. In chapter 5, he says, They are refusing to take necessary ecclesiastical action against real sin. But in chapter 6, our text today, they are all too happy to take unnecessary legal action against trivial offenses. There's a stark contrast. He then says, They are outraged at the thought of church discipline, but they have no problem suing a fellow church member. There's a mosquito flying around up here. If you see me doing weird, there's already, I know, weird hand gestures at times, but it's bugging me. So that was the problem. And now Paul offers a solution. That was the problem. Now Paul offers a solution. It is embedded in verse one and then elaborated in verses two through six. So listen for it at the end of verse one. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you hear the solution? Paul understands they may have grievances from time to time, but when they do, they should go to the saints. Who are the saints? He's not talking about venerated historical church figures. Saints is a word 
that is used for Christians in the New Testament. If you are a Christian, the New Testament word for you is hagios. It is set apart. It is you are a saint. So Paul says, I know you're going to have grievances when you do. Go to the saints. That's his solution. When this happens, go to the church. Go to your fellow church members. Go to the elders. Not, he is saying, not the world. He goes on in verse 2. Or do you not know? Now pause for just a minute. That phrase, do you not know, is one of Paul's favorite phrases. He uses it six times in this chapter alone. And when Paul uses it, he wants to shame his readers for forgetting basic doctrine. He wants to shame them. He said, you should be embarrassed that I have to repeat this fundamental basic doctrine that you've been taught that you should know. Here's how that might sound today. You have no excuse for your behavior. We have gone over this before. You should know better. Or you do know better. That's what Paul means when he says over and over again, do you not know? He's saying, of course you do. How could you forget this? So back to verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Paul's point here is that the Corinthians were more than qualified to settle these grievances among themselves without going to civil court. And as proof, he references two realities. The first in verse 2, do you not know the saints will judge the world? That's the first reality. And then the second in verse 3, do you not know the saints will judge angels? So here's what this means. One day, Jesus is going to return. He's going to come back for a second time. And when Jesus returns, he will return as a judge. And there will be a final judgment. And on that day, Jesus will reveal the hearts and the destiny of all created beings, including angels. On that day, Jesus will do that. And this is the reality that Paul is referencing here specifically. Christians will join Christ in part of that judgment which is fascinating. Christians will somehow, some way, join Christ in part of that final judgment. So let me give you a few verses. There are a couple more obscure references to this. I think they're more obscure. You could look them up on your own in Daniel 7, 22, 
And then in Matthew 19, 28. But here's what Revelation 3, 21 says. The one who conquers, and that would be all Christians. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Also, Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. We will somehow, some way, be given authority over the nations. And then 2 Timothy 2.12 says, one day we will also reign with him. So one day, in some way, and I don't presume to know the details of this, but one day in some way, Christians will join Christ in judgment of the world and even angels. Therefore, this is Paul's argument, Christians are more than qualified to settle grievances among themselves. This is called a greater to the lesser argument. If you're equipped for this greater task, then it reasonably follows that you're equipped for this lesser task. One day, Paul is saying, you're going to be a part of judging the world. You're going to be a part of judging angels. You are going to reign with Christ. You are going to sit with Christ on this throne over His kingdom. So you are more than qualified to settle these trivial cases among yourselves. That's his point. Let's keep reading. So, verse 4, If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? That's a rhetorical question. Paul's point is, of course there is. Of course there is someone among you who is wise enough to settle these disputes. In fact, Paul is actually saying more than that. Paul is saying that Christians, especially those in your church, are more qualified than anyone in the world to settle these disputes. So he's not only saying you have options within the church, so why not take that option? He's saying you have better options in the church. So that's the solution. This is true, by the way, for other problems that Christians may be tempted to outsource. But God's plan for your growth and, and godliness is the church. That's God's plan. Not to say that every 
organization that looks to meet needs for Christians or every business even or every company maybe or formal ministry outside the church doesn't serve a purpose at times, but just know that God's plan for your growth and for your maturing and for your godliness, it's the church. And Christians can be very tempted to quickly outsource and look outside the church to have needs met that need to be met within the church. And this is an example that Paul is giving here, but there are others. Do you need mediation? Look to your church. Is there something going on between you and someone else, maybe even someone in your church, and there's a problem, a roadblock, and you can't work through it, and you've tried, and you've sat down, and it's not getting anywhere, and you need it to be mediated? Look to your church. Do you need financial support? Look to your church. Do you need advice? Look to your church. Do you need counseling? Look to your church. Now, many of you say, I don't need counseling. (laughs) There's a stigma, isn't there, about counseling? There is. I've seen it as a pastor. There's a strange stigma about counseling. And the idea is that counseling is like the last resort. Counseling, where you're sharing your problems with someone and they're helping you find solutions. Counseling is seen as a last resort And it's seen as something that you do when it's really, really bad and all other resources have been exhausted. Listen, that kind of thinking is what gets many of you in as big a trouble as you are. It should be an earlier option. Most of the time, and if you've ever come to me for counseling, one of the first things I say to try to get rid of that stigma is that every Christian at some point or another, needs counseling. There are times where the ordinary means of grace will not cut it. There are times where you're in worship and you're in the Word and you're praying and you're in fellowship, but there is some problem that you can't work through. There is some sin that has power over you that is not being broken through ordinary means. In those cases... You need to sit down with a believer. You need to sit down with a Christian. And you need to confess your sin. And tell them what's going on. And give them all the information so they can open the Word of God with you and help you come up with a plan to work through whatever it is you need to work through and hold you accountable to it. Every Christian at some point needs counseling Defined that way. So do you need counseling? Look to your church. More qualified than anyone in the world is a Christian in your church. For example, if you need counseling. I would say more qualified even than the professional psychologist or the professional psychiatrist that does not know Jesus even more qualified is the person sitting next to you this morning. Because the one sitting next to you this morning, especially if they're a member in your church, they know you and they know God. And even more importantly, they have what many others do not. They have the Word of God 
and the Spirit of God. And if you have the Word of God and you have the Spirit of God, you are, to quote the title of J. Adams' book, competent to counsel. So, look to your church. So in case it's not clear already, here's the main point of verses 1 through 6. The church is competent and called to handle internal grievances. The local church is competent and called to handle internal grievances. Paul has more to say about this. So let's move on to the next section of verses. Verses 7 through 11, where remember, Paul reveals a deeper problem and then suggests a gospel alternative. In Paul's mind, taking one another to civil court was a symptom of a deeper problem, which he reveals in verse 7. There's something deeper. that That's a problem, that they're taking one another to civil court. But there's a deeper problem. That's just a symptom. Verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. In other words, before the Corinthians get to civil court, they've already lost. See, there's a deeper problem, he's saying. Before you even get to court, you've already lost. Or the word he uses, they have already suffered defeat. Paul is saying that if you get to the point where you have this kind of petty grievance against your brother or sister, you have already been defeated. If you get to the point where you're already having these sort of trivial cases among you, you have already lost. It was a problem that they took their grievances outside the church, but it was a deeper problem that they had these grievances in the first place. This is Paul's point. That you... Have these lawsuits at all, he says. This is the deeper problem. We shouldn't. Galatians 5.13 says, through love, serve one another. Ephesians 4.31 through 32 says about us, a church, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted to one another. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 calls us, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul wrote all of that. You see what he's saying? If you treat one another this way, if you're kind this way and patient this way and tender-hearted this way and loving and serving one another this way, 
and considering one another better than yourself this way, and considering the interest of others before your own this way, you won't have these petty grievances against one another. So that you have these petty grievances at all, Paul says, is the deeper problem. That you are internally litigious is a deeper problem. The Corinthian Christians were easily offended. The Corinthian Christians were easily grieved into taking one another to court. They were arrogant. We already know that. They were self-centered. And so now Paul suggests a gospel alternative. And it's found in the second part of verse 7. Here it is. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud. Even your own brothers. Think about what Paul is saying. Instead of looking to wrong one another, why not rather suffer wrong? You hear what I think is his tone? What's the big deal? So you've been wronged. Why not suffer that? Rather than looking to defraud one another, in other words, take advantage of one another, specifically financially, why not rather be defrauded? Why not, he suggests, Turn the other cheek is the way Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 5. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger. James 1.19 says the same thing. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And then listen, it is his glory to overlook an offense. So here's God's word saying, this is a good thing. Not to take offense. Not to overlook. It means you've been offended. You've been offended. Overlook the offense. This is the encouragement in Proverbs 19. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 7, 21 through 22. And I know many of you wish you could do this better than you can. He said, do not take to heart all the things that people say. It's the same thing he's saying as Paul. It's not a big deal. Do not take to heart all the things. They say a lot, don't they? And think of it, you you really want to rattle yourself. You probably don't hear the half of it. That might not have been a good thing to say. (laughs) Do not take to heart All the things that people say. Why? Lest you hear your servant cursing you. It's probably not good. You're going to hear things that 
that don't reflect you in a positive light. So don't pay attention. And then, and then he says this, Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Instead of looking to wrong and defraud, Paul writes, be ready and willing to be wronged and defrauded. That's what he's saying. Christians, he's saying, why not be ready? Expect this is going to happen. Why not be ready and willing to be wronged and to be defrauded? That is the alternative. And that is a radical alternative. It's also one that needs a point of clarification. Paul is not exhorting the Corinthians or us to stand ready and willing to be wronged criminally. So this is a really important clarification. When we talk about Christians needing to be willing to suffer wrong, Paul does not have criminal behavior in mind. Remember verse 2, he's talking about trivial cases. Petty cases. He is not talking about criminal cases. The church should never quiet criminal behavior or cover for criminal behavior, whether it is embezzlement or whether it is spousal abuse or whether it is stealing, whether it is molesting, whatever it is, the church should never, ever, ever look to quiet criminal behavior. Rather, the church should drag criminal behavior into the light and encourage other Christians for those things that are criminal to go before the magistrate or the civil government and let them do the job that God has given them to do. So Romans 13. You could read that. Verses 1 through 5 makes clear that criminal cases fall under the jurisdiction of the state. And the civil government, thank God, with all its problems, has been established by God for the protection and the good of all people, Christian or not. So that's a good clarification for us. However, back to Paul's point. When it comes to these trivial cases within the church, Paul's suggested alternative, rather than looking to wrong and defraud one another, is for Christians to be ready and willing to be wronged. Be ready and willing to overlook an offense, not indulge it. Are you easily offended? Are you easily grieved, maybe even into sin? Are you easily tempted to retaliation, whether in thought or deed? Are you tempted to take things more sensitively than you ought? It's good there's hardly a limit to being sensitive to others and to the needs of others, but when that same sensitivity is turned inwardly, it can lead to lots of problems. If this was common in our church, what was going on in the Corinthian church, would you be tempted 
Would you be tempted to go outside the church even to resolve issues or problems that you have with a brother or sister? This was ungodliness in the church. Ungodly behavior. And the Corinthians, Paul says, were suffering a loss because of it. They were being defeated. Their hearts were being defeated. Their witness was being defeated. The purity of their church was being defeated. Now, as I said before, this was a gospel alternative. Not just an alternative, but a gospel alternative. And I chose that word because of verses 9 through 11. These last three verses. In verses 9 through 11, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the call of the gospel or the demand of the gospel. It was something else that they had forgotten, which is why verse 9 starts with, do you not know? You know this already. We've gone over this. And this call of the gospel is what should motivate and enable the Corinthians to overlook these offenses. The truth of the gospel and who they are in Christ should enable them to overlook these offenses. So I have been wronged. So I've been defrauded. So I think that I've been cheated or I've been lied to or whatever it is. I can handle that. I can deal with that. I can move forward. I can forgive. I can overlook how the gospel. This is why he comes full circle. So here's what Paul says in verses 9 through 10. Or do you not know, and Paul's going to say three things. Here's the first. That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is the bad news that precedes the good news of the gospel. Sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. Another way of saying that is sinners will not go to heaven. He calls them here the unrighteous. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Men and women who commit these sins or a million others that he could have listed will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is the first thing that Paul reminds them of. The second is in verse 11. And such were some of you. What is the key word in that phrase? Were. And such were some of you. That's past tense. 
Paul is reminding the Corinthian Christians that they are no longer unrighteous. This is who they were. This is not who they are. They are no longer idolaters or adulterers or thieves or drunkards or swindlers. That is no longer their identity. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is now a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So first he reminds them, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he reminds them that they are no longer the unrighteous. Unrighteous is who they were. Righteous is who they are. And that's true for every Christian. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you are no longer the unrighteous. You are the righteous. Now, the third thing that Paul says answers the question, how did that happen? How did that happen? And I hope you don't think, well, I got righteous. I got righteous, or I read a book, you know, or five steps to righteousness. I went through this program. I got my act together. I pulled myself up. I did this. I became righteous. That's not what happened. In fact, if you think that's what happened, you may actually still be one of the unrighteous. So what happened? There's one more thing Paul reminds the Corinthians of. And it answers the question, how are they no longer sinners who will not inherit the kingdom of God? How are they no longer unrighteous? Verse 11, such were some of you, but... You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see? He does not say, but you cleaned yourself up. He does not say, you set yourself apart for this. He does not say, you justified yourself by changing your behavior. This is something that happens to a Christian. This is something he reminds the Corinthians that happened to them. They were passive in this. Jesus did something to them. He says you were washed. Now if you're a Christian... You can't read these verses, if you're you're awake, you can't read these verses and and not have your heart filled with gratitude that this is what Jesus has done for you. You have been washed, which means that you have been cleansed from the guilt and stain of sin. How much guilt of sin do we carry around? How stained 
do we feel by what we've done in the past? Well, the Christian has been washed. This is symbolized by baptism. The Christian has been washed. They have been cleansed. You read the Old Testament, one of the things that God's people are always doing is washing. Wash, wash, wash. Wash before this, God said. Wash after that. Make sure you wash here. Don't forget to wash. Don't go here without washing. Don't leave that place without washing. Over and over and over again. That was communicating something spiritually, and it was you can't ever get clean. you got to wash and wash and wash and wash. And that is pointing you to the reality that your soul is guilty and stained before God. And the only one that can wash you is Jesus Christ. And when you become a Christian, He washes you. Titus 3.5, He saved us, not because of good works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. How? By the washing of of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You have been washed, Paul says. You have been sanctified. Which means that you have been broken off from the power and practice of sin. Broken off, cut off from the power of sin and the practice of sin. You may feel like sin has the same power over you that it once did, but it's a lie. It does not. You're no longer enslaved, Paul says, to sin and unrighteousness. Actually, you're enslaved to righteousness now. Paul was sent to the Gentiles, Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. In me. And then finally, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they have been justified, which means you have been declared righteous. But there's where it came from. There's where this new righteousness came from. You have been declared righteous, not because you got yourself righteous. The Bible speaks of this all over the place, but here's Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So this is Paul's argument. Jesus has washed, sanctified, and justified you. Therefore, overlook offenses. Overlook these petty grievances, especially those from your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the call of the gospel here. The gospel demands that we show others a degree of the mercy 
that has been shown to us. And so we should gladly. Let me quote David Strain again. Here's what I really need. What you really need, I suspect, in your daily conflict, in your daily struggle to live for the glory of Christ and pursue practical holiness. So many of us are tempted to think what I really need is some extra dose of supernatural power, some more juice to power the engine of my soul to help me be obedient, something more, something new. But that is not Paul's counsel at all. His counsel is not to look for something new, something extra. His counsel, rather, is to go back to what God has already done for you in Jesus Christ. To understand the gospel and your new identity in Him. To get that clear. To begin to press it down into every pore and crack and crevice of your spiritual life to let it percolate all the way through and begin to live in its light. In conclusion, speaking of a, a courtroom, every one of us will one day Stand before Jesus in a courtroom. We will stand before the great judge. And on that day, just like today, if you were to enter into a court, you better not do that without a lawyer. You better not do that without one who is going to plead your case without one who is going to advocate for you. 1 John 2 teaches us that Jesus is our advocate. He is our great attorney. He is our great lawyer. And the way this works for the Christian is that as you stand before the judgment of God, you, by Jesus, will be declared righteous. And you will escape penalty for sin. You will escape punishment for sin. You will not be sent away from God. You will be welcomed to God. And that will be on the basis of your faith in Jesus. Because you believed what Jesus said and you trusted what Jesus did. You believed the gospel, Christian. And you lived your life in accordance with the gospel. Demonstrating the power of the gospel. You learned who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for you. And it changed everything. And you lived your life for Him. And so in that courtroom, as He is even now in the courts of heaven, He is your great advocate. And you are protected, and you are provided for, and you will be saved and delivered from the wrath of God. If you're here this morning, 
And Jesus is not your advocate. You have not put your faith in Christ. You are not living for Him. You're living for yourself. Then when that day would come, you will stand without representation before God. And friend, He will not hesitate to condemn you. And He will not hesitate to cast you away from Himself forever. Let me remind you of the Gospel in just four quick points. Number one, God. God is the holy and sovereign creator of all things. God is good. He is great. He made you, and He made you to know Him. He made you to love Him. He made you to worship Him. And you are accountable in the end to God alone. Number two, man. You are a sinner. You have not loved God the way you ought. We have rejected God and gone our own way. And when we die, our soul is going to live on. And it is either going to live on away from God or to God. And if you lived away from God on this earth, you will live away from God eternally. This is the bad news. Third, Christ. God is merciful. Jesus is God's son, born to a virgin, he came and lived a perfect life. He suffered and died on a cross. He was raised back to life on the third day. He ascended and now sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And the reason He came and lived and suffered and died is so that His life and His death could count for you. He is the Lamb of God. He is the last and perfect sacrifice. Sacrificed once and for all for His people. Number four, response. You must respond to Jesus. You must either go on rejecting Him or receive Him. There is no in-between. There is no just not receiving Him. Listen, not receiving Jesus is rejecting Him. You must confess and resolve to hate your sin, not love it and encourage it and look for opportunities and neglect it. But to confess and hate your sin, you must surrender yourself and your will to Jesus placing your faith in Him. If you do, you will be saved from your sin, no matter what you've done. Paul gave you quite a list in the text today. There's other lists. And there is nothing that you could possibly do that could separate you from the love of God if He would save you. He is ready he can save you from sin, from yourself, from Satan, 
and from the wrath of God. When we trust in Jesus, we are united to Him. Our sin and our guilt is imputed to Him, and He died because of it, and His righteousness is imputed to us, and we live because of it. So if you haven't, turn to Christ now. Today. And if you are here and you are a Christian, and you are practicing ungodliness, then you're not dealing with your sin, and you're not living the way that you should live, and you know it, then the gospel has a stern word for you today. And it is, do not take advantage of your loving Heavenly Father. And do not use His grace and His willingness to forgive over and over and over as an opportunity or an excuse to not deal with or put off dealing with the sin that needs to be addressed.